Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That is me. I'm your host on this program. Our job is to bring entrepreneurs, startups, and founders together with angel investors, VCs, and uh, investment people of all kinds. And we are also uh, in the position of trying to help entre entrepreneurs, trying to talk to experts who can analyze and maybe get to the heart of uh, the ways that they can get better and create companies that are more profitable and longer lasting. And to that end, I am joined today by uh, Larry Robertson. Welcome, Larry. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure. Great to have you on the Accelerator. Larry is the author of Rebel Leadership, How to Thrive in Uncertain Times. Um, he has, a, I really recommend Larry's uh, LinkedIn profile as one of the more interesting ones. Um, you'll see um, he is many things, a writer, a speaker, um, certainly an innovator, a consultant, uh, and he uh, is also a Fulbright scholar. I've never interviewed a Fulbright scholar before, so you can tell that because he looks smart. Um, <laughs> maybe we can get to that uh, at the end of the podcast, but that's a, that's a pretty cool thing to have on your resume for sure. So thank you. We're glad. We're very happy to have you. And I guess what we're what we're always looking for in these things is um, is the secret sauce, uh, is the combination of things that makes a great leader. And I just want to preface my questions by, uh, you know, I've read a lot of books about entrepreneurs. I've read a lot about, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, et cetera. Uh, you know, you name it. I've, I've read it kind of thing. And if you read the book, um, books about Jack Dorsey of Twitter, <laughs> one of the co-founders, he, he doesn't appear to have any leadership qualities that I can tell. And yet he's led this, you know, uh, ostensibly very successful company. Maybe it could have been more successful. But it's, it's a very, um, it's a funny thing because um, Ev, uh, Ev Williams, who started Blogger and then was the co-founder of Twitter, same thing, kind of a mysterious guy, not necessarily from central casting. Um, not everybody looks and acts like Steve Jobs, I guess is what I'm saying. So when you work with companies, when you work with startups and entrepreneurs in particular, where do you start? What are you looking for? What are some of the key indicators for you? Sure. Well, it's there's there's so much that's valuable in what you just said that let me let me touch on a part of that as I build up to what do I look for? What do I look at for so so my my background or part of my background was as an investor in uh, early stage companies. I was part of a, a, a larger company that did that and spent a lot of time with the entrepreneurs before we even funded them. So we were, we were looking at what is going to make them successful in general, not just the individual entrepreneur, but the team and the idea and the marketplace. And that's part of the answer to your question is all of those things have to connect to one another and register value on, on all those fronts. There's the, the, the cult of personality where we believe that one person can just do magic and push it all through isn't true. Every, everybody knows it, although that's the way we celebrate entrepreneurship. We pick the person and we like to tell the story around them and forget all the supporting cast and, and chapters that came before. Um, why, do we, but, why, do we, why do we do that, Larry? What is, why, why do we have a need I know you're a deep thinker, so I can mm. ask you this question, but why do we have a need to glorify the entrepreneur? That has not always been the case historically. Yeah, well, you know, we like a hero story. 
And we, we live, it's, you know, I was going to say we live in a, in a country and a culture, but really we live in a world that likes a hero story. And, and that's not a bad thing. Um, because it celebrates human ability and, and human accomplishment. And we, we would like to believe that there is some superhuman element out there that somebody can tap into. And so when we see, you know, wonderful things happen, when we see the idea that, that looks like it was immaculately born, that's just so impressive and so uh, in advance of whatever market they, they might be in, we want to gravitate to that hero story. I mean, this is hero stories, as best we, we know from written record, have been around thousands of years. And our yeah. society continues to feed the idea of a hero story. The industrial age and, and the way it made us very, you know, pyramid-like and, and it goes from the top down reinforces that. We're rewarded for that in classrooms by what grade we get and how many times we shoot up our hands. So I think it's very natural that we want that story, why not with an entrepreneur who appears to us, somebody that's breaking new ground, um, appears to us as though they're rolling the dice and taking the risks and being rewarded for it. It, it. It's absolutely the makings of a hero story. And that's okay to a point. Then the point is, do you want your venture to sustain? Do you want it to continue to generate value? Do you want to, um, help others to lead and generate value. That's really the dividing line. So there are individuals who can hold up that mantle for a period of time, but they're not very well suited for the long term. It's funny, you make me think of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, which is embedded in Star Wars and too many movies to count. And it also <coughs> makes me think about your book, Rebel Leadership, because the, the um, the mythology of the rebel, and I want you to talk about that that particular choice of words because I know you gave it a lot of thought, is if you look at um, the superhero movies, if you look at, uh, you know, popular culture, what you see is this story in America played out over and over again. Mm. And it is as follows. A small band of rebels get together against unbelievable odds, mm. and yet they prevail. And this, by the way, I, my theory about this, I'd love to hear what you think, but my theory is that this is really the myth of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. That's what happened, right? It was a small group of people <laughs> against unbelievable odds, and they won, and mm. they won the war. Mm. So how do you define rebel, and how did you come to that that idea of re rebel leadership, you know, for your book. Sure. So I, I think of those two terms as being one new term, rebel leadership, not, not the individual parts, but let's, let's deal with the individual parts first. So there's an impression of the rebel that is the dice roller, the risk taker, the seeking change for the sake of change alone. But there's another side to the rebel that's far more important. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the person who's open on an ongoing basis, the person who's looking around to see if the assumptions have changed, whether the old ones have, have been outdated or there are new ones that are beneficial or threatening or whatever it is, they're open to those ideas and they're open to others. That's really the rebel part that I think is so critical, especially in uncertain times. Then there's the leadership word, and that has um, the dichotomy as well. Most of us tend to think of a leader who is somebody who has a bunch of followers, 
but really the best leaders create an environment where everybody can step up and lead, each in their own way, contributing to the whole. So rebel leadership is really a reflection of our need for the best of both to be open and innovative and adaptive, but also to create this environment where everybody can step up and lead and allow that adaptation to happen continuously over time. That's really where the term comes from. And if you think about it, you made the reference to Joseph Campbell. We see mainly iterations of his hero's journey and, and the book that he wrote, which is a fascinating book, by the way. But one of the most important things we yeah. forget is that he talked about the hero's journey as circular. So it does, it's not linear like we might see in a movie. It repeats and it causes that hero to go back to the beginning and go through the reconsiderations and the heavy lifting and the trials and tribulations many times over. And it, what you see in that journey is, as Campbell tells it too, is that all along the way that hero had help. So rebel leadership is really a reflection of those two things. It's this ongoing process and it's never done alone if it's done successfully. So uh, a rebel leader has to does can be at any at any in any part of the hierarchy um, and has to uh, convince others to follow their lead, I guess. So is it is it is it a philosophy that where you really want effectively everyone to be a, a rebel leader? So this is interesting. I think of rebel leadership as a mindset. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I want to call that out because. Someone could interpret your words as the person who has the title, whether they're the head of the project or the head of the organization or whatever it might be. And I just want to make sure we don't we don't mix it up with that. But this mindset of leadership being cultural, leadership being something that everybody contributes, leadership really being about in the moment, given the conditions, can the best person step forward? and not only lead others, but be supported by others. And when that changes in the next moment and it requires someone else, can we keep doing the same thing? That's really what I mean here. So it's almost more about that, that culture that accepts that everybody will need to lead in their own way at some time and facilitates them doing that. That's, that's the really important thing. And when you, when you have that as a culture, you do a lot less convincing of people to follow you because there's this trust factor that you're all after the same shared purpose. How did that, how did your thinking on that evolve to today and to when you wrote this book versus when you were working with those startup companies? Has your thinking on this changed at all? I, I think evolved is the right word, as, as you just started with. Um, I saw those entrepreneurs that you referenced at the beginning that, you know, you look at them and you say, I, I guess I'll, I'll put it in the words I just threw out there. Really? Are they that heroic? Did they really have, did they really create this on their own? Did they really have the ability to lead? And I spent time with them intimately, not just as a external investor, but way, way, way before we even talked about raising money for them or contributing money to them. What's your idea? What, what drew people to it? Where do you want to go with it? Why is it valuable? It's looking at those kinds of things. And what you see when you kind of peel back the curtain, you know, to use a Wizard of Oz analogy here, is that it, <clears throat> there, there's really this greater dynamic that's going on within the most successful organizations. And so that's always been something that I've looked for. And then in the entrepreneur, I've always looked for that willingness to remain open, 
to realize that the, the beautiful thing that they may have started or birthed was a result of them being open and taking a very different view than others around them were at that time. If you want to keep that going, you have to create an environment where you continue to remain open and anybody can put those kind of ideas forward. I think that's really, if you know, mm -hmm. you use the, the, the phrase secret sauce, that's a secret sauce that's in there with those other necessary ingredients. Listen, if there's no value in what you're creating or you don't know who the value's for, mm -hmm. then there's no there there. It's just an idea. If you don't have people who bring individual skills and are working to are looking to work hard, um, if you don't include your customers and your partners and others who make the, the venture successful, of course, you're not going to succeed. But those are th those are table stakes. That's what gets you there in the first place to even have anybody pay attention to you. But that ongoing openness is really a key factor to success. And that's something that we forget. Well, and the, the idea of, you know, uh, creative destruction that you have to be willing to kind of destroy what you created, which is a great mythical, mythological kind of idea too. But in real practical terms, it, it is often referred to as the pivot. Mm. Um, you come into the company, um, you know, this has happened to me any number of times. You start a company, you have an idea, as you said, um, it doesn't really work <laughs> or it's not really working. It's not, you know, it's not a home run. Sure. And so you have to be willing um, to pivot. And um, maybe you can, from your experience as a consultant, working with entrepreneurs, helping them become leaders, helping them become rebel leaders. Um, can you think of some examples of uh, situations you've been in where you've kind of guided entrepreneurs and founders um, along, along these lines? Yeah. I, so it, it's interesting. I can think of, um, many situations, the reason being, as you very well know, in any entrepreneurial venture, in any organization that's growing quickly and changing dramatically in those stages of, of growth, um, the examples that, that you're talking about are, are there almost every day. <clears throat> so it's this constant need to address them. So maybe I can come at, the, at answering your question a slightly different way. How do you see those moments? You know, how do how does an entrepreneur know when they're in one of those moments? How does the team know when it's time to open up and think a little differently? And I'll I'll give you a technique that I learned from from someone else that I interviewed from for my second book. And it's called the five habits of the mind. And it's five questions that an individual can use. Um, project teams can use an entire organization can use to start to suss out these moments and know when they're there. And the first, it's, it's five questions, the five habits. And the first question is, how do we know what we know? So think if you started every day or every week, just with that simple question, it's a check on your assumptions. It doesn't mean they've changed. It means you're open and aware that those assumptions are driving what you're doing right now. So if they do change for the positive or the negative, you have to be ready to adjust. The second habit of the mind that follows how do we know what we know is, is there a pattern? Because things are always changing, but what we're looking for isn't the anomaly. We're looking for the pattern. This is telling us that something is maybe changing in an ongoing and lasting way. The third habit of the mind behind how do we know what we know and is there a pattern is some form of the question, what if? 
well, what if our assumptions have changed? What if there is a new pattern out there? What if we solve the problem it creates this way? What if we innovated in the direction of the opportunity it creates? Those are the first three habits. The fourth is, is there another way? Because there's always another way. So it's really a question about reminding you that this is the cycle, kind of like, you know, the, the heroic journey cycle. But it's also a way to say, don't fall in love with your idea. There are always other ways out there. And your competition is going to come up with some of them. You've at least got to be aware of what those other ways are. So how do we know what we know? Is there a pattern? Some form of the question, what if? Is there another way? And then this is the most important one of all. Who cares? Because if those things don't connect together to who cares internally when a team faces these challenges, when a team needs to open up again to how they might do things differently, but also the people outside the organization, who cares enough to want to buy into what we're doing or actually buy what we're doing, service, idea, product, or whatever it is. Those is, that, is, that a customer, is that a customer question? Or is that a, both a customer and an internal question? It's a, it, it's both in my mind. And let's just take the external customer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Partners, prospective employees, investors, all of those people. If you don't understand why they care from their own vantage point, it's pretty hard to convince them to back you in one way or another. So I, I think of those five habits as the thing that elicits the examples you're talking about of situations where you have to remain open or you have to rise again to be a rebel leader. How do you make people care though? That sounds really hard. I don't think you can make people care. I think Let's you talk can internally, in, internally first. It's like, how do you, okay, you change strategy, you pivot, yep. um, you're leading, you're, li you're listening. A lot of what you're talking about is listening. I think you've mm. really got to be mm. a listener mm -hmm. um, and you got to hear what people are saying, not just, you know, lip service. Um, but uh, that's, that's my question. How do you make them? That's the wrong way to phrase it. What, what does one, what does a rebel leader do to create this idea of caring about the outcome, I guess, and also the process? Yes. So, um, I'll start with where my, where my thought went immediately. When you asked that question, I don't think you can make people care. People already care. What you can do is tap into what they care about and why they care. So on an internal side, that's precisely what determines the shared purpose of any group that's that's undertaking any task. Mm -hmm. That's precisely what is the anchor for whatever culture you build in an organization. Now, I don't mean that everybody makes their list and you sort down to the democratic view of, you know, what's the balance of what everything cares about. What I'm saying is by asking people what they care about, you not only hear it from them first, but if you ask everyone, you find that common ground that pushes you forward. And when you focus on that common ground, people amplify how much they care and they communicate it better to others that you want to care, the customers, the partners, the future employees. So, you know, to think about, and, and I'm not suggesting you were saying this, but for someone to think about imposing care by saying, look how valuable this is, which many entrepreneurs do, you're really facing an uphill battle versus tapping into what people already care about and saying, here's a better way to get to that. Interesting. We're talking to Larry Robertson. His book is Rebel Leadership, How to Thrive in Uncertain Times. And these are certainly uncertain times. So let me ask you this. We're also, you and I are talking uh, 
online via video, um, Zoom-like qualities. Mm. Many people, much work, much business is getting done. I don't know about you, but the rest of my day is three more Zoom calls. <laughs> yes. Um, and one of them I saw on my schedule and it said, Zoom with Bodie. I think I'm interviewing Bodie Miller today. <laughs> wow. wow. How cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wow. It, it can't be another Bodie, right? It just says Bodie at you know four o'clock or whatever. But the point being that now, and I'm on a uh, remote workforce task force at the Pace University School of Business. So I'm interested in the answer to this for sure. How do you lead when you're not there? Mm. When you're remote, when you're virtual, how do you, how does that change the dynamic or has it, has it been going on long enough to really know the answer to that question? Um, I don't think it's been going on long enough to know the answer to that question. And I think that is an incredibly insightful remark within your question. So the, the, keep, keep, keep don't, don't hesitate to keep flattering me. Really, really <laughs> and I will do it honestly. <laughs> Um, so, so that this is an, like a pretty obvious statement to me. But <laughs> this is an interesting thing, though, Michael. So, um, and I'll give you a data point for it. Th this past summer, McKinsey and Company surveyed 500 executives and 5,000 managers, employees down down the chain, hmm. and they were asking them about first the return to the office. But in the larger context of how are we going to work together going forward? What is this going to look like? Which includes that not everybody's going to return to the office right away. We're going to do a lot of this virtual or at the, or at the very least going to do some kind of hybrid. And what was fascinating about the responses is that 75% of those executives talked about not only a return to the office physically, but they were very specific about the number of days and the way it would work and what where technology would fit in and that what was about to happen, they meant in, in weeks or a month, was going to last. It was going to be the new status quo for somewhere between three and five years. And McKinsey themselves, the researchers were so shocked by the, all this, they called it the finish line mentality. So these leaders, at least publicly, were saying, I've got to have an absolute answer to your question right now. And my job is to assure everybody else <clears throat> that there is an answer. It will work and it will last. Here's the, the twist. 75% of those 5,000 employees they ask weren't buying it. They thought their leaders were out of touch. They thought the instability in how we work and how we connect with one another was going to continue. And they were wise enough to know the reality, I think, that this this waiting back and forth between fully digital and fully in the office or somewhere in between is going to continue to change. And it's going to be a reflection of each distinct team and set of leaders within it, because there is no one answer for how it's going to work best. So I think it's a fascinating thing to kind of wring our heads and say, hmm, do we fall into that leader category where we're assuming a path that, that, that is past tense or a role of a leader that's past tense? Or are we more in that majority of people who are saying, I don't think it's going to work that way. Let's work on that solution. Okay. So let's, let's, um, Assume we don't have a definitive answer, but I still would like you to maybe make a prediction or predict how things are going to change. I, I my sense is that we're we're never going back. Uh, we're never going back all the way. Agreed. 
it just makes too much sense not to be, you know, commuting <laughs> all the time or traveling all over the world when you can do this kind of connection. Sure. Um, and these tools that we have, like Zoom, mm -hmm. uh, are, are only going to get better. We're just in the first generation of those or second generation, perhaps. So how does how do you think leadership will change? In other words, let me let me just add one thing to that. So does that mean a leader has to be, you know, charismatic and convincing on a Zoom call versus like taking somebody by the arm and pulling them aside? I mean, it's a different thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's the same. Thing. I don't know. Well, there's there's an interesting weave of, of what we've been talking about here. And I'll, I'll first give you a quick anecdote. For about three and a half years, I taught in the business school at Georgetown University. <clears throat> and I taught a course called Understanding Entrepreneurship. And one of the things I love most about that course, it was one that I created, was that over the, the course of the semester, I would bring in somewhere between four and, and, and seven different entrepreneurs. And they were so different in every way, from ethnicity, gender, generation. Mm -hmm. Some were quiet. Some hadn't finished high school and were very loud and, and, and swore and things like that. But across the range, what you saw was that there was no model of any particular type of leader that was more successful or less successful. They were each successful in their own ways. All of those people that I brought in did something that I talked about earlier, and that is they saw leadership as something that had to happen on a cultural level. And so they really cared about the people who worked for them. They invested in that care. They communicated to those people, I need you to lead alongside me. And because of that, even when they didn't have interactions, like direct interactions with one another, even when the senior leader didn't understand all the details of any one person's job, there was a level of trust and a level of commitment to accomplishing the same thing that overcame those boundaries of knowledge or, you know, maybe we're in different offices physically or whatever it is. I think the same things will be true in the virtual part of how we interact as, as organizations, but how leaders interact. If you're not encouraging everybody else to be a leader, if you don't understand what they care about, it's really hard to compel them or encourage them to do anything. And that to me has nothing to do with charisma. If you have charisma or other personality traits that lend well to that environment, great, and you're lucky. But you don't have to have those things to be successful as a leader, no matter what our dynamic is going forward. Well, let me push back slightly on that. Please. Um, in the sense <clears throat> that there, I, I, your point is very well taken. Entrepreneurs come in every flavor. Um, if anything, when I see a charismatic uh, founder, mm -hmm. I get a little suspicious. I feel like, you know, they're charismatic. I like them. They're, you know, I want to believe what they're telling me versus somebody who isn't charismatic, but, it, you know, has a good story to tell. But the, but the issue is this. Some people are, I, I'm, I'm going to make a statement, maybe I'm wrong, but I think some people are just not going to lead in that way. That doesn't That's mean true. they necessarily just want to follow somebody. But some people are, are just not like that, I think. Maybe, maybe you would disagree with me. But I think that there are um, – I think there really are leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there really are followers. Now, if you can create what you've suggested, that's the perfect world. Mm -hmm. But what about people who just don't want that responsibility? What, which responsibility? 
the responsibility of like I'm a uh, assistant manager of something, mm. and yet uh, you know the CEO and the upper management of the company wants me to lead mm-hmm. from this spot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, that's just not who I am. Yeah. I do my job. I care about my job, but I go, that's it. You know. So how do you, how do you play that? How do you fix that? Sure. So, so one of the first things that I always think about and that I always do in, in conversations that come with my clients, we have these very conversations and they're, (laughs) they're saying is, is that what you, you want me to tell all my, my managerial people to do? And, and by the way, what if they respond that way and half a dozen other ways that don't seem in sync with that? And that's where we get to this conversation about, are we talking about the, the leader or are we talking about leadership? And oh. what we're talking about is leadership and, and asking people to step up with the best that they have to give to the situation that requires the best they have. It has nothing to do with title. It, it has nothing, in some ways, it has nothing to do with power except giving them the opportunity to do that. What it really has to do with is how do we create that environment where you, the manager, doesn't, doesn't want to be, you know, some mere image of the CEO, doesn't want to even direct more than a couple of people or maybe no people at all. Maybe you want to direct projects. That isn't what we're talking about. We're not talking structural. We're talking about how do we enable you to bring your best to the situations you're best at? Because when you do that, we're all going to be better. And that's not typically how we have conversations about leadership. We talk about leader equals leadership as though one person or one position is in charge of it all. This is a different dynamic. That's a different story. So, um, Larry, I would be remiss if uh, we did not talk about your Fulbright scholarship before we uh, before we end this podcast. I wanted to ask you. Um, I know it's in the future; it's coming up for you, so you've been selected. Um, what are you going to do as a Fulbright scholar? What's your plan? Yeah, so the the, the program is is um, seventy five years old as of of this year. And its idea is to create idea and knowledge exchange between uh, those of us in the United States and and other countries. It typically takes place through universities and mainly it's students and academics, but there is some small uh, portion that is professionals and that's the the area that I fit into. And what I'm gonna do is team with a partner at a university in Costa Rica. We both focus on entrepreneurship. We both focus on innovation, but in very, very different ways. And we're bringing our combined knowledge to remote indigenous communities in Latin America that never get exposure to these kinds of thought frameworks or ways of approaching innovation. And, and, and what we're doing that's really special, Michael, is we're going to places where we've been invited. So we're being invited. They're identifying what the challenge is. We're simply teaching them the frameworks. They're solving their own problems. And everything we bring stays with them. So that's what I'll be doing. I want to jump the shark a little bit here and ask you, um, do you think that the core tenets of leadership and entrepreneurship will be the same in a remote uh, village of indigenous people as it is in Silicon Valley? You bet. And the reason I believe that is, is that the core things are human things. And it's about mm. human interaction and how humans take risks and how they ideate and, and they need one another to do that. And that's really our emphasis versus here's how you put together a business plan. 
or here's how you raise funds. Those are tactics. So those core fundamentals are really what we're emphasizing. And then they'll build the natural supporting elements within that community. I would add just one thing uh, to this uh, discussion, which is how global we are. Um, you know, there's been talk of this for decades, but one thing the pandemic did without a doubt was um, put people with an internet connection, mm -hmm. wherever that might be, on kind of the same footing mm -hmm. in many respects. So, you know, I'm finding entrepreneurs. Uh, I mean, yesterday I interviewed an entrepreneur in Kazakhstan. And, um, you know, it, and, and the next day it might be Poland. And the next day, you know, it, 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 it might be Boston. Right. It really doesn't, it really doesn't matter uh, as much. I mean, it, it's, there's still differences, of course. But, but I think that um, we are in a world where what that means is if you're going to lead, you're actually probably on some level, you won't have to be a multinational CEO to have to lead people from different cultures. Absolutely. You know, different religions. I mean, I'll give you just one example. I was speaking to um, doing some work in uh, Tehran, of all places. And I was speaking to a, um, uh, a startup, uh, an accelerator guy over there. And we happened to be speaking on the day of the year that was the shortest day of the year. So it's what, December 21st. Mm. And I don't know about you, but to me, this is always like a very depressing day. <laughs> there, it's got the least sunlight, right? And, and it's over before you know it. Well, it turns out in Iran, it's a day they celebrate. I'm like, what? Yeah. Why do you celebrate this? He said, well, the shorter day means that um, the family is all together. And um, this is cause for celebration. And can you think of anything more foreign to like the way we think in the United States? I mean, so I think this ability as a leader, maybe that's your next book, Larry. <laughs> Rebel leadership all over the world. I just think that something is happening right now um, that is profound, and it's it's so far beyond you know Thomas Friedman. It's a it's a flat world, you know, sure. so far beyond that um, that uh, we will probably you and I um, at least will probably spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how that works, mm. and. Um, and it should be it should be pretty interesting. I'll leave. I'll give you the final word because you're the Fulbright scholar, you're the consultant, you're the innovator. So, what would you say to an um, an entrepreneur who is struggling with all of these things we've talked about? Yeah, I you know I I don't I don't mean this this to sound throwaway, but I would say be open. You know, think about the ways in which. You, you may think you are, but then think about the ways in which you're not or should be. And, and to tie it to your Iran example, to tie it to what I'm looking forward to most about being in Latin America is how much I have to learn from someone else, not what I'm bringing. So think about what the, the perspective you gained in Iran. I hope to gain that every day when I'm in Costa Rica and these other countries that we'll be working in. But I can't gain any of that if I don't keep pushing the edges of my openness. And I think that's a key trait for an entrepreneur. Well, if uh, if I were a better listener, I would agree with you. No, I'm just kidding. I think that's really great. Um, it's a very difficult thing. Um, it is. It's a very difficult thing on every level. But 
Um, you know, when I, I had a radio show, a talk show for a time in Colorado, and what I realized is like, I really had to learn to listen, mm. you know, I really, and I mean, really listen. So I would, I had this, you know, I'd, I'd hold my hands a certain way, no video back then, you know, hold my hands a certain way. And I would like become immovable and I would just try really hard to listen and yes. not interrupt all the time. Yes. And and that is such it, it is such a great skill. And I think it's what you're talking about with entrepreneurs to be able to hear what people are actually saying. Absolutely. I can never forget who I never remember who said it. And I always want to credit Mark Twain. But the, the, the statement was nobody ever learned anything while they were talking. <laughs> and a, I think that's, that's true. Well, on that on that note, we've got to stop talking. But uh, this is The Accelerator. I'm Michael Conniff. Uh, we're a podcast for entrepreneurs, startups, founders, um, and for uh, angels, for VCs, for people in uh, the business of making investments in startups. And uh, we've had a great talk with uh, Larry Robertson. He's the author of Rebel Leadership, How to Thrive in Uncertain Times and other books. I think one of them is right behind you, right? A Deliberate Pause. Yep. And The Language um, of Man. Connect with Larry uh, on LinkedIn. Um, we were referred by a mutual friend, and I'm so happy uh, my buddy and your buddy, Peter Buchanan, put us together. But um, I want to thank you, and uh, I want you to promise to come back, um, hopefully before you leave for Costa Rica, but at least after. I'll, I'll do it. It's been a privilege, and thank you for the work you're doing. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and you take care, and uh, we'll be back on the accelerator with more before you know it.